Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, halfway down the aisles here on the banisters, there's some black Bibles you can borrow for the day. Feel free even now to stand up and get one of those. And turn to 1 Peter. Use the index in the front if you're not sure where that is. It's a small book toward the end. As you're turning there, I'll tell you a short, somewhat funny story. One Sunday after uh, the morning sermon, the morning service, I was up front and a woman came up and she was fairly new. We chit-chatted for a while and then she asked, Oh, by the way, what are you? So I took a gamble and I thought she meant, what role do, you, do I play here at the church? I said, I'm the preaching pastor. She said, no, 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 what are you? Okay. I said, what, what do you mean? Help me out. She said, what's your heritage? What's your nationality? Oh, okay, I got that. So I said, well, I, I'm French and Irish. So she stared at me funny for a bit and she said, no, you're not French and Irish. That's what I've been told <laughs> by people who were older than me, and they knew, apparently. They, someone told them. I don't know. I assured her that I'm French and Irish. Other things, too, perhaps, but, but at least French and Irish. She says, no, 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 you're, you're something else. You're Puerto Rican or Mexican or something. <laughs> I wasn't offended. Puerto Ricans here might be offended that... This got called Puerto Rican or Hispanic. Maybe it's the eyebrows. I don't know. But so I, I said, "Nope, not Puerto Rican or Hispanic." And then the conversation ended ended awkwardly, and that was it. If you still go to Desert Springs Church, thank you for that great story. It's I appreciate it. I like it. I wasn't offended by it. That might be an odd question to ask someone. What are you? But it's one we ask ourselves all the time. What I mean is that most of us give a lot of thought to our identity. Jesus asked Peter once, Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, we don't have the guts to ask people that about ourselves, do we? But we think it all the time. We ask it of ourselves all the time. Who am I? With whom and to what do I identify? Well, our passage this morning is about identity. First Peter 2 is about identity. And we land on this passage at a fitting time, a Sunday where we honor our moms. Motherhood, from my observation from the outside, is a consuming identity. Moms are hardworking and underappreciated and selfless. The work never seems to cease. It's all a blur. It's all life in, in the home and in homemaking and mothering. It, it, it's all consuming in some ways. It's a consuming calling. Proof is that there's shock and even often an identity crisis for new moms. And proof is that on the other end, it's extremely difficult when there's an empty nest. What now? Who am I? Moms often ask. Well, motherhood is this powerful and pervasive identity and calling, and the Bible recognizes that, no doubt. But 1 Peter 2 talks specifically about an identity in, in much deeper terms, a more pervasive identity, a more powerful identity, an eternal identity that's even stronger than this one of motherhood. 1 Peter 2 is about a people of God, by God, and for God with apologies to Abraham Lincoln. Yes, in his Gettysburg Address, he spoke those famous words now, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. I agree with what Lincoln said as a governing principle, but when it comes to the highest calling and our deepest identity as Christians, we're not a people of the government, and we're not even a people of the people, whatever that would mean. We're a people of God, by God, and for God. Let me show you what I mean in First Peter 2. Starting in verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies 
of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the world honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's God's word for us this morning. I think we can break this passage up into three main parts. First being our identity, our identity, a people of God. That's what we see in verse 9, and especially in that fourfold description, which I just read. We briefly talked about verse 9 and 10 last week, but I promised to come back to it. I said last week that even back in verse 4 and 5 and following, and then into verses 9 and 10 in following, Peter's tapping into the Old Testament vocabulary, using terms and concepts from the Old Testament, but he's injecting them with rich significance, almost new meaning or further dimensions. He's showing us a further deeper realization of these terms and concepts as they were found in the Old Testament. And so it's rich with Old Testament history. And most of these four things here in verse 9 flow from Exodus 19. First, a chosen race. It's not just a group of people, but a race, a people, a kind, a group. Exodus 19.5 God said, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Even though all the earth is the Lord's, all the people are God's people in a sense. He owns them. He made them. They're his. But God, in his wisdom, according to his plan, made one nation out of one man. And by the time you get to Exodus, it's no longer one man, but it's a, it's a massive group of people. But they're, they're under Pharaoh. They're, they're in Egypt and in slavery there. So in Exodus 19, God is now collecting his group of people. He's codifying that group of people. And all through the Old Testament, from Genesis on, God keeps reminding this group that they are his My people, he keeps saying over and over, just just find a a Bible search engine or a Bible program or a Bible website and and search in quotes, my people. It's just, it's so many, it's amazing. Now, Peter takes that Old Testament language, that ethnically specific language of the Old Testament, and he applies it to Christians, Gentile Christians, Romans even. Or we could say to Jews and Gentiles. He's saying that God is making a new people, in a sense, a new race. In a sense, God is making a a whole new creation. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. We tend to individualize that when we think of it. As Christians, we tend to think of it as, I'm a new creation, I'm a new creature. Uh, uh, the, the little bug or, or sloth, what, what, is it, what, is, what turns into a butterfly? Caterpillar. A caterpillar. It, it goes into the cocoon and... Sloth. I don't know why I said sloth. <laughs> Stick to the notes, Ryan. Stick to the notes. <laughs> Off-roading is dangerous. All right. We tend, we tend to think of it as, you know, me being new and better and improved. And part of that's certainly true. But, but that's not what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 5. He meant we're part of a new creation. We're part of a whole new breed, a race. And this is defined by those who are of faith. In the Old Testament, there was a big people and then a, a narrow people. There was an ethnic people, but then there was a, a people within the people, and people who were truly redeemed and forgiven. They, ha- they have not just circumcision in the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. They have not just family to connect them to God, but faith. So in Galatians 3, Paul says now it's simply faith that connects us to this whole ancestry and to God himself. He says in verse 7 of Galatians 3, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
You think the sons of Abraham are just those who came after him in this giant family tree? No, now it's defined by faith. So later on in the chapter, Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's a chosen race. Peter also says we're a a royal priesthood. This also comes from Exodus 19. Exodus 19 says, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a priesthood. Now why is it in Exodus 19 that God says that all of his people will be priests? Isaiah 61 also says so. You shall be called priests of the Lord. In the Old Testament, there were capital P priests. There were professional priests who worked at the temple, who did the sacrifices, yes. But yet, there's also a sense in which all of God's people were priest-like. Think of what it means to be a priest in the Old Testament. They had to be holy, pure. They were near to God. Priests lived at the temple. The Levites weren't given a share of the land. They didn't need it. God was their inheritance. They had a house, the temple. They were near to God. They were God's chosen, these priests. The professional priests of the Old Covenant all came from that one tribe, the Levites. So if you were born from one of the other 11 tribes, you didn't grow up thinking, you know, someday I might grow up and be a priest. I'm going to work really hard, get good grades in my Hebrew class, and I'll be a priest someday, maybe. No, it wasn't possible. It was by God's sovereign designation of one tribe that there would be a people of priests. You didn't apply for priest school. They were born into it. And what was true of the Levite priests in particular was also true of the nation as a whole. You were born into God's blessings by his design They were to be holy, all of them, not just the priests. They were all set apart for God's purposes. The priests in particular, but all the people as well. They were all to be near to God and him near to them. That's also true of Christians. According to Peter, in Christ, Christians are not applying for God's blessings. They're born into it. Not born into it ethnically, but born from above. Twice Peter has talked about being born of God. Chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 23. Being born spiritually, not ethnically. We were made to be holy, made to be set apart for God's purposes. We are royal priests. We're a holy nation. Again, this is from Exodus 19. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, God said. Now, nation for us today means something like a geopolitical entity, you know, something that UN recognizes. But in Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 2, the word nation really has more of a connotation of ethnicity, ethnicity, a people, a group, a culture. The calling of Israel was an ethnic calling, but they were to be an ethnicity of holiness. And again, Peter applies this Old Testament-specific language, this Old Testament identity to Christians, regardless of their past, regardless of their heritage, their nationality, their, their race, their ethnicity. God is making a new ethnicity of sorts, and he's making a new ethnicity of all the ethnicities. The Apostle Paul explains this at more length in Ephesians 2. Listen carefully to how he puts it. Several verses here in Ephesians 2 describe what Peter is just giving us in, in a couple of words. Ephesians 2, verse 12, Paul says, Remember that you, Gentiles, non-Jews, were at that time, in the past, before Christ, you were separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's hopeless. No hope without God in the world, someplace else. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, he himself is our peace. And he has made both one. Jews and Gentiles now one in Christ. He's broken down in his flesh a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Or any other hostility that might be there. In Christ, there's now peace because we're in him. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Just like what he said in Galatians 3, there's now no longer Jew or Gentile, but just those in Christ. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 to say, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And he describes this whole household, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Just like we saw last week from 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5, we now are on the cornerstone of Christ, living stones, one on top of another, being put together for a place, a a people of God's presence. Paul says the same thing. We're growing together into a holy temple in the Lord. We're being built together into a dwelling place for God. Now, we're so far away from these old covenant times that we poo-poo the distinction that's in the Old Testament between Jews and Gentiles. We, we microwave how big that divide was into something very small. We microwave the span of time that that, that, that kind of distinction was made. We, we just, oh, yeah, back then it was kind of weird to be a Gentile. We would have no hope. Without God, without the promises. Oh, there were a couple blips on the screen throughout the Old Testament. You know, there's Rahab. There are, you know, guys like Nebuchadnezzar who get it for a while. But by and large, we're outside of the covenant, outside of the promises. But now in Christ, we're the temple. In the Old Covenant, uncircumcised Gentiles couldn't go into the temple. Not just the Holy of Holies, no one could go there, but they couldn't go into the courts of the people. There was a penalty of death for an uncircumcised Gentile going into the temple. But now, in Christ, you can not just go to a temple, you can be his temple. It's unthinkable. Again, he's making a new people out of all of the peoples. So Revelation 5 tells us how it all will end. will end with praise to God, to praise to Jesus, because by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom, a people, a nation, a race, and priests to our God. Isn't it neat how the Bible seems to just fit together? Like there's one author behind it all, all these different authors, and yet somehow the the, the teaching is connected and consistent. And then Peter says, we're a people for his own possession. Again, from Exodus 19, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. We Christians, in Christ, because Christ is treasured, because he's the choice and precious cornerstone, we're accepted Not just accepted, but in the family. We're his. We've been bought. Similar to Israel being rescued from slavery in Egypt. So we too have been ransomed. As we saw in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, you were ransomed from the feudal ways. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Having ransomed us, he set us free, but not free to ourselves. Free to him, free from sin, free from guilt, free from judgment. 
We're now his, though. We're his. We're his people. That's a good thing. What does it mean when we say we're his people? Or what does it mean when Peter says, using that Old Testament language, we're we're now a new race, we're now a new nation, we're now a new people group, a culture? Well, think of ethnicity. What does it mean when we share an ethnicity with others? It's a shared story, perhaps. A A shared history. A shared identity. Maybe many shared traits. Many shared ideals. It doesn't mean that we're all exactly the same, that there isn't any uniqueness one person to another. Today, especially in the U.S., we don't like corporate identities. We don't like labels being put on us. We like to emphasize our individuality. We like to think that we're the one and only snowflake that's made like me. And we are, right? We all have our own individual DNA code, unless you're an identical twin. But even though no two snowflakes are alike, there's still snowflakes. Have you noticed that? There's still snow. There's still cold. It's still H2O. It still has the same story. Came from up there, now I'm down here. Every snowflake has the same story. So before we rush too quickly into our individuality, my own story, don't make me the same as everybody. I don't know if I want to be a part of this nation, this race, this people group, this culture. In Christ, we like it. We embrace it. We're a people with a shared story, a shared history, shared identity, shared traits, shared ideals. We have a shared God, and that's the most important thing in all the world to share. He is ours, and we are his. We're his possession. That's our identity. So whatever else you have as your identity, our passage begins with those three words, but you are. How would you finish the sentence? I am a fill-in-the-blank fan. I do this for my job. I'm a mom. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm a homeschooling mom. We're a public school family. We're American. We're Western Americans. I'm Native American. The Bible doesn't say these are illegitimate categories. It doesn't say don't like these things or acknowledge these things. But in Christ, we have an identity that is far, far deeper, eternal, glorious, and shared with those all over the world, those alive and those who have passed on. That's the first point here. Our identity. Secondly, God's initiative. A people by God. We're a people of God. And we're a people of God because we're a people by God. In each of those four descriptions in verse 9, there's an important underlying theme. God's initiative. It's a chosen race. Just like the formation of Israel with Abraham. Abraham When he was in Ur of the Chaldees, the beginning of Genesis 12, he was probably a run-of-the-mill pagan. And somehow God came to him and intervened and, and took him, sent him to another country, sent him on this trek towards a promised land. Just like the rescue of Israel in Egypt, a chosen race, God's people. Not because they were going looking for him, not because they were good. A royal priesthood, just like the priests of the Old Testament. They're born into it. You can't apply for it. So we Christians. We're Christians because of God's initiative. We've been born again. We've been caused to be born again, is the language earlier in chapter 1. It's all over the Bible. You can go back to Adam and Eve. God made them. They didn't make God. They didn't make themselves. God made them. And after they sinned and then went and hid from God, God went calling. You come to Moses and all of Israel when they're redeemed from slavery in Egypt and you ask yourself, why? Why? Does the Bible answer why? You can look backwards and say, well, it's according to his promise. According to the promises he made and repeated from 
Abraham on. Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and those who followed. He kept repeating the promises that he gave to Abraham first. Over and over again. It was not because they were great. It was not because they were great in number. Even though they were pretty big at the time of the rescue from Egypt. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses said, You're a people holy to the Lord, set apart to the Lord our God. For the Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples in the face of the earth. But it was not because you were more in number than any other people the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. With Abraham, the nation is one, one guy. And it comes a long time after that there's even this promised son, Isaac. God waits until Abraham and Sarah are past childbearing years so that it's clear he's done it. They can't do it. Not because you were many. You were the fewest of all peoples. It's because Deuteronomy 7 says, the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That's why the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. When he was patient with them in the wilderness, their grumbling and their unbelief, their their complaints and, and their idolatry. Why was he patient with them? Well, Ezekiel 20 tells us, God said, I acted for the sake of my name, that I should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. Hundreds of years later, God brought his people out of Babylon, right? Slavery there again, bringing them back to the promised land. Why did he do it? Because they've finally learned their lesson. Their 70-year time out worked. Not really. Well, it's because they've done pretty good. The, The first 63 years, not so good. But the last seven, noses are clean. No. Isaiah 43 During that time of the slavery in Babylon, you didn't call upon me. You've been weary of me. You've not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. You've burdened me with your sins. You've wearied me with your iniquities. But I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. One first Peter scholar, commentator, said, Israel was a chosen people, but not a choice people. And the same is true for you and me. Why? Why would he set his mercy on us? Why would he choose us? Why would we be born into this priesthood family? Why? We don't know. But we can say, praise be to him, it was by his doing it's his initiative. In the language of 1 Peter 2.9, we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. This too speaks of God's initiative. You see that same word picture played out in 2 Corinthians 4. Darkness into light. How do we get from darkness to light? We were smart enough to turn the light on? No, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We wouldn't see it if it were not for this. God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, back in Genesis 1, the creation account, light be, and there was, that same God did something similar in our hearts. He shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We were in darkness, we were in sin, we were blinded by it, and we were happy about it. We thought it was light even though it was dark. And we liked the darkness when it covered our sin, when we could hide in it. But God in his goodness burst forth that dungeon and it was flamed with light. And as Wesley said, And we went forth and followed him. And then in verse 10, there's also this phrase about God's initiative. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That sounds an awful lot like what we just read from Ephesians 2, but actually there's more to it than just that. 
This is coming from the book of Hosea. This language in verse 10. Hosea was a prophet of the Old Testament time. He was called to preach, but he was also called to be a living parable, an illustration. He was a a human flannel graph, you could say, for God. And he had to illustrate to the people what was going on with God and his people. So you probably know the story. The prophet had to marry a prostitute and no less one named Gomer. That's a bad name. She's a bad gal. And God was showing through Hosea in Gomer that God's people were playing the prostitute and God was playing the persistent and faithful husband. But at the beginning of the book of Hosea, God says, when Gomer conceived and bore a son, God said, call his name not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, where I just said it, you are not my people, it will be said to them, children of the living God. You go to the end of chapter 2 of Hosea, and God says, I will say to not my people, you are my people. And then he, you, will say, you are my God. Now what does all this mean, and and what does it mean for 1 Peter 2? What relevance does it have with 1 Peter 2? Let me have the Don tell you what it means. That's Don Carson. Don Carson, a New Testament scholar, a friend of ours here at Desert Springs, writes this about what's happening in 1 Peter 2 as Peter looks back to Hosea 1 and 2. It's a long quote, bear with me, but it's worth that he puts this way better than I can, no surprise. He said, those who are declared by God not to be loved and not to be his people in Hosea 1 and 2 are all Israelites. Then to those Israelites who have been, in effect, excommunicated, God, in his mercy, reaches out and says, you are my people and I am your God. The point is that once Israel has been judicially declared by God to be not my people, they are indistinguishable from the pagans. They are really not his people. It is a judicial sentence. That's exactly Paul's argument, he says, in Romans 1 through 3, that Jew and Gentile alike are closed up under sin. We're all a damned breed. We're all lost. There's no hope for any of us. It doesn't matter if we're under Mosaic covenant or not. We're all sinners. That's the point. Because Israel itself has become not my people. If God reaches down in his sovereign grace and reaches those who are not his people and then says, you are my people, it doesn't really matter whether he speaks this way to those who are ethnically Israelites or those who are ethnically anything else. They're all damned. They're all lost. They're all not his people. It's by God's sovereign, gracious reaching out that he takes and saves, transforms and makes those who are not his people into his people. That's what's going on in 1 Peter 2, he says. That's why Peter looks back at Hosea. A time when God said, in a sense of a divorce, you're not my people. And then in his faithfulness said, you are my people. If God can reapply the covenant promises to those who were not his people momentarily, then he can apply those promises to us who were not his people. But it's all about God's initiative with Israel, with you if you're in Christ. Thirdly, we see God's intentions in this passage. We see our identity, God's initiative in God's intentions. We see a people of God, a people by God, we see a people now for God. Let me suggest several P's that we can draw from 
from 1 Peter 2 about God's intentions for us, his calling on us, and what it looks like to be people for God. I want to add these to your sermon notes, several Ps. Praise being one. Praise. We're a people for his praise. Really, that's something left undone from last week. Remember back in verse 5, Peter said, you yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house. You're a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God in Jesus Christ. That's all about praise, priestly praise. I said last week that the New Testament takes sacrifice language and burnt offering language, offerings of the Old Testament. Those terms and concepts are now in the New Testament injected with whole new meaning. They're not done at the temple. You are the temple. They're not done with this prescribed ritual. Do this, then burn that, then add this, then put your hand here. Bow. But it's all of life. It's simple things. Funding and caring for missionaries, Paul says in Philippians 4, is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Taking the gospel to the nations, Paul says, is an acceptable offering in its priestly work, Romans 15. Praise to God, Hebrews 13 tells us, is a sacrifice of praise. We should continually offer it up. Sharing with those in need is a sacrifice that pleases God. Simply doing good is one of these worship things that has Old Testament priestly temple worship language attached to it. Even dying in faith is a form of worship, a fragrant offering to God. Paul says in Philippians 2, bodies and all that they are, all that they do can be a living sacrifice, a a holy and acceptable sacrifice. All of life can be spiritual worship, Romans 12 tells us. Why? Because Christ is to be preeminent in everything, Colossians 1. Because whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you're to do it to God's glory. Whatever work you do, you're to do it heartily unto the Lord and not unto men, Colossians 3. Whatever serving is to be done, it's to be serving in the strength that Christ supplies so that he gets the glory, 1 Peter 4. And also in verse 5, as I said, Peter talks of us as priests once again. Again, think of what that means, that we're to be holy, we're to be pure. We are holy. We are pure. We can come near. Again, remember that the priests lived in the temple. We live in the temple. All of life is to be lived out as an expression of worship, of intimate, awesome worship before a holy and awesome God. All of our work is to be set-apart work. The priest's work was set-apart work. We're to, in all of our work, set it apart. Now there is no distinction between what is holy as if some work is a-holy or a-moral. Here's a test whether you got this or not. Do you think that your preaching pastor really has to walk a straight and narrow Thursday, Friday, and Saturday if the sermon's going to be any good on Sunday. He's really got to be holy. You wouldn't put it in the terms I just did, but you would say, yeah, yeah, you should be holy. And that ministry will have some reflection upon whether he's holy or not. That may or may not be true, but do you think the same of your work? You think of Monday morning, Monday's coming, it's beginning This is a holy moment. None of us think of Monday mornings as holy moments. But we should. It's all holy work. We're all priests now. Oh, some work, like maybe mine or others here at the church, might be more obviously spiritual in its content. But it's not a different kind of work altogether. There is no amoral work anymore. I mean, there are some professions which are in the sin business that you can't glorify God with, but, but everything else is priestly work in the temple done to the glory of God and for the love of our neighbor. We all have that same high and holy calling. Some 
of us will do it in the home throughout the week. You're a homemaker. Your home is your temple. For all of us, home is temple. For all of us, church is temple. But for some of us, have a a job, a a job, a vocation that's in the world. That means that you're a priest there. Some of you are priests of intel. Priests to the base. Priests for an airline, for a hospital. Put that on your business card. Whatever else you do, and blow it, priest. That sounds strange to us, but isn't that what 1 Peter 2 is implying? That's what he means by praise. But another P is proclamation. Backing up to verse 9, we see that phrase, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is all over the Old Testament, declaring God's praise. Isaiah 43, a people I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Part of being his people is doing priestly work and worshiping him, acknowledging his presence, communing with him, yes, and proclaiming. Proclaiming his praise, proclaiming who he is. Not just who he is, like bare facts, but proclaiming, Peter says, his excellencies, his excellent acts, his excellent worth, his excellent character, his ways and his work. And really, the praise and the proclamation are mingled here in 1 Peter 2, like they are in so many psalms. Remember that from the psalms? When we were in a series on the psalms not too long ago, we saw often there's this mingling of praise and proclamation, vertical to God and horizontal to others at the same time. You can't draw the lines neatly between the two. So Psalm 145 says this, maybe the best when it says one generation shall... Praise your works to another, literally. I shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I'll meditate and they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness and they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. It's so very experiential. It's tasting and seeing the Lord is good In the language of Acts 4, you can't help it. You can't help but speak the things which you've heard and seen. We proclaim the excellencies not just of God, but as those who have been recipients of being called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We proclaim the excellencies of our salvation. We've tasted and seen that he's good. We've been filled up and satisfied and nourished by the milk of the word like newborn babies. We've been called not just to light, but marvelous light. We should declare it. We should talk of it. We should proclaim it. This is one way in which we're mediators of God. This is one way in which we are functioning as priests between God and the world. As I said, Paul says this in Romans 15. He sees his ministry of preaching the gospel in the nations as a priestly work. It's him standing between God and the people like priests of the Old Testament did. Now, we don't have priests that we go through as Christians. But we Christians represent God to the world with, uh, with our proclamation. And, and, and also with prayer, we intercede for him as we pray for them. And we show him God's character, which is righteous and just and loving. In those ways, we mediate God in a a way to the world that's high and lofty. Whatever else you do, whoever else you are, you're God's set-apart priest if you're in Christ. You're his mediator, his herald. But you're also a pilgrim, another P. There's a pilgrimage about all this. Verse 11 begins, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. This is an identity that Peter has already talked about more than once. Sojourners, exiles, travelers, people on the way. We are people between two worlds. 
we have one foot in this world and somehow, spiritually speaking, mystically, we have one foot in the world to come. And one day we'll go to him. One day we'll be like him. One day his work in us will be complete. Those he justified, he'll one day glorify. And even right now, our citizenship is there. It's in heaven from which we await a savior, as Paul says in Philippians 3. Pilgrimage, we'll talk more about that next week. Another P word, though, is purity. I urge you, he says in verse 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter's already talked about this. In chapter 1, he he says, Be holy like God is holy. He calls you, Be holy as I am holy. Be like him. Leave aside that old self, the passions of the flesh. Here, he says, abstain from those passions. Leave them alone. They wage war against your soul. Peter is clear the problem is not just out there. As pilgrims and strangers, we're not just trying to survive or get by or be alone with God and just commune with him. We've got to work on self. And we work on self in part with the world in mind. So another P, it's not a great P, but you can't have another letter after so many P's, is purpose. We're a people with purpose. Purpose in relation to the world. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Live thoughtfully in this present world. Live honorably. Live like Jesus, humbly, sacrificially, lovingly, justly, righteously. The world is watching And the hope, amazingly, is not that you would just endure, but that they would see your good deeds even as they speak evil against you. And they would believe. They'd be rescued. They would join us in salvation and in God's worship. If you're not a Christian, hear how that speaks to you. Look at God's word. Look at God's people. Oh, the people are not perfect, but, but hopefully true Christians will show something of the truth of the Bible and the gospel. Get to know a Christian, a Christian that's thoughtful and careful, will show you things in God's word and probably show you something of a changed life that may evidence that God has done something miraculous, unusual. This is one of those of a different race, a peculiar people. Let me wrap this all up with just a couple minutes here, coming back to this thing of identity. Who are you? What defines you? Our passage began with those three words, but you are, and how would you finish the sentence? If you're a Christian, it is clear who you are. It is amazing privilege. It is amazing power that God brought about these realities in our lives. And these identity markers, you could say, trump all others. Whatever else we are, we are a chosen race, a a people for his own possession. We're We're a royal priesthood. We're part of a temple. We're being built together. So a mom's identity is or should be dwarfed by all these great identities of First Peter 2. It's a high calling, motherhood is. Not like this, though. It's underneath these. These are subsuming and consuming. It's not just moms, but a woman's identity is or should be eclipsed by these. Earlier, Ron prayed for our ladies here who haven't yet been able to bear children, infertile, Doesn't this passage show you, though it's hard, and though you pray, doesn't this passage show you a lofty, rich, deep, glorious calling that something like motherhood really can't hold a match to? It's eternal. It's forever. It's with God himself. The thing of parenting points to the greater reality of God as Father. 
the picture can't be better than the thing itself, the thing to which it points. You might be unmarried or, or widowed or abandoned by a husband or beaten by a husband or sexually abused or of marriable age with no suitors knocking at the door and none in sight. God is your God. God is your identity. Teenagers, get a grasp of this. Whatever else anyone says about you at school, God is your God. You are his people. This changes everything. What can they do to me? Adult men who are tempted to think that your identity is wrapped up in work or resume or, or paycheck or level of salary or stability or muscle strength or how far you can ride your bike. These are all identity markers for us, aren't they? Let God be God. We're priests, men. We're in the temple. We do his work. We're people of God and by God and for God. Let me close by reading these words in Deuteronomy, and I ask you to hear these very personally if you're a Christian. Summarizes so much of what we've talked about this morning. In Deuteronomy 10, it says, To the Lord your God belong heaven and earth and all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. He is your praise. He is your God. He has done for you great and terrifying things. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. Now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. And fast forward several thousand years. He's made us as numerous as the stars of heaven from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation in Christ for his glory. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for these truths and we pray they would hit us in power and in sweetness. That you'd cut and convict where that's needed. You would heal up and make sweet where that's needed. Most of all, we need you. We need you to save us. We need you to comfort us. We need you to strengthen us. We need you to lead us. We need you to be you. And we thank you that you will. We thank you that all these promises and all these needs that we have find their yes and amen in Christ. You've already done it. You are doing it. You will do it, and you will bring us to yourself. One day you'll free us from these bodies. You'll give us a whole new body and a whole new creation. And forever and ever we will behold your glory. Lord, make us strong pilgrims in the meantime. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.